If you'll turn with me, um, we're in the book of Psalms. We are in Psalm 15 this morning. Psalm 15. Turn your attention to the reading of God's Word for you today. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, speaks truth in his heart, does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, and whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you this morning and ask that you would, you would guide us. Lord, this is your word. This is your word for us today, and we pray that you would open our hearts, our minds, our eyes, Father, that you would fill me with your spirit to proclaim with clarity your truth, uh, to proclaim the fullness of your word, the, the beauty of your gospel. Lord, work in all of us, draw us by your spirit nearer to you. We pray these things for your glory and for our good and joy. In Christ's name, amen. So how do you, how do you work to prepare yourself for Sunday morning, for the Sunday morning worship gathering? Perhaps some of you have a, a Saturday night routine that's pretty well set. Uh, maybe, you know, larger family, all the kids get a bath, uh, they're in bed early, you lay out their clothes so everyone knows what they're going to wear in the morning so it's not a rush and a fight. You make sure that they're actually clean, things like that. Uh, maybe sometime during the week, maybe Friday, Saturday, you go over the text, you read through it. Before Sunday, maybe you play some of the songs that we're going to sing uh, during the week so people are familiar with them. Personally, uh, you know, obviously I'm prepping for it all week, but I'll try and eat well on Saturday night uh, as well as get to bed at a decent hour because Typically, Sunday morning for me starts around 5.30. I get up and read the Word and, and pray and, and do some last-minute preparations. And then once here, it's a busy morning once we get here past a, a very slow-moving triathlon this morning. Um, and, the, you know, there's help with setup, uh, and a number of people are involved with that and music. And then it's a pretty quick turnaround to 10 a.m., and then the service is rolling. And I think you know, in many ways, what most of us think about when we think about being ready for Sunday morning is, you know, what are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? Um, how are we going to get there? Does, does the car have enough gas? Things along those lines. You know, Psalm 15, though, I think takes that issue of preparation much deeper. It is about preparation, but it's not about preparation in the, in the physical and outward sense. It's about who we are. It asks the question about what it takes to dwell with God on his holy hill. 
Now, some would characterize this psalm as an entrance liturgy, so that, that what's done as you enter into the temple or into the tabernacle, so that as worshipers come near the tabernacle, they're asked a question similar to what we have in verse 1. It's something that we would find as well in, in Psalm 24, verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in His holy place? A place that's a little more drawn out in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7, the first seven verses. It goes like this, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. See, coming into the dwelling place, into the presence of the Lord, is a serious endeavor. We are coming before a holy God. And what I hope we see this morning as we look at Psalm 15 is that this is not to be taken lightly in our lives. Our lives as believers throughout the week and and how we live, that's not to be an afterthought. Psalm 15 tells us much about God and much about ourselves. It is a short psalm, but it speaks loudly against hypocrisy, against those who claim to be God's people, against that idea of wearing a mask purporting to be one thing, but being completely different in the core of who you are. Now, this psalm has no set structure that will help us in our interpretation. There's, it, it's not laid out in any particular way. It's hard to even fit in this orientation, disorientation, reorientation structure. Um, but the flow, I think, is actually fairly clear. It begins with a question in verse 1. Then verses 2 through 5b, so there's three lines in verse 5, so through the second line of verse 5 is the answer. And then in verse 5c comes a promise, comes a promise. So let's see what the Lord has to tell us this morning through this psalm. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? So here's the question. What is this question getting at? What is this question telling us? Like I mentioned, this psalm gets to the heart, uh, the the character of the person approaching the the, the tent or the holy hill of God, approaching his presence. And it, it is, though, asking more than who can merely come into his presence, come in and worship with the people of God. It's asking who can dwell there, who can reside with the Lord This psalm has aspects of being what we would call a wisdom psalm. Um, So its its purpose in many ways is to help guide the reader, guide the listener, the people of God into the way of holiness. This this is the general way of holiness. This is the way of righteousness and, and, and more so that we can consistently be a people who dwell 
in his presence, who dwell with the Lord. So looking at this question, there are two terms, sojourn and dwell, that you, you can see are in parallel in the question. The, 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 the two lines are really in parallel to one another. You have, um, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Uh, who shall dwell on your holy hill? So dwell and sojourn are in pa- parallel as our tent and holy hill. Now, to be a sojourner is to be a, a resident alien in some way. You, you have no inherent right to be there. You're not a natural citizen, so you must be invited in. And in our relationship with God, obviously, that, that invitation is through the work of God's mercy and grace. The privilege of sojourning must be granted to us. Now, the term dwell, the Psalms use that term often. Um, one place, Psalm 65, 4 Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. There's blessing in dwelling with God. There's blessing in in dwelling in his presence. There's satisfaction in being with him. And in many ways, and we sung about this earlier, this is the desire, uh, the, the heart's desire of the people of God is to be with the presence of the Lord. One of the things that, that we don't want is for the Lord's face to be turned away from us. We don't want to feel forsaken. We want to be in His presence, that presence for blessing. Psalm 27, 4, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Now, along with it being the desire of our hearts, though, and, and they're, they're being blessing. Part of the blessing of dwelling in the presence of God, of, of being in His temple, is safety. There's safety in being with the Lord. To be with the Lord is to find refuge in Him, to find refuge in His presence. Psalm 91.1, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Abide. His, his wings are spread out over us and He protects us. He, he protects us with his, within His shadow, within His presence. There's many other places you could look. Psalm 61, 1 through 4, 101, 6 through 8. This idea is, is very prevalent. And God's people believed that they knew that they were safe in the presence of God. Well, then we move to the terms tent and holy hill tent or tabernacle or even later on to temple, but it, it probably referred to first to that tent that, that David pitched for the Ark of the Covenant in 2 Samuel. It was the place where God chose to, to dwell among the people of God. It was that, that, that the place that was within the, the, the encampment of Israel. And then the holy hill, it's Zion. It was the place from which God would answer prayer. Psalm 3, verse 4 tells us that. It's also the place from where the king would be anointed. Psalm 2, verse 6. And so when we take all these terms together, sojourn, dwell, tent, and holy hill, you have um, blessing, you have refuge, there's worship, there's sacrifice, and there's even the hospitality of the Lord of inviting people into His presence. So the question that's posed here then is, to whom will the Lord welcome 
into His presence? Who will be welcomed in to God's presence to dwell with Him in safety and in refuge and in worship and to enjoy the hospitality of the Lord? So that's what we're called to ponder in many ways this morning. And we're asking ourselves, we should as we read through this, are we those kind of people? Is that true of me? And that's an important question to ask because as we see really in in all times of history, the church is a bit of a mixed bag, isn't it? It is full of true worshipers and merely those who profess but aren't true worshipers. You know, there, there are true, those true, who are true and faithful, but there are also hypocrites, those who put on that false appearance, whose lives contradict the very belief system to which they purport to belong. And that's always been the reality, that there are many who falsely take on the name of God and pretend to be His people, and they do so without grasping the danger that that involves, the danger of this self-delusion. I think this text helps us to see that it is important to live in actuality what we say we believe. We're prompted here to examine our lives. If we desire to be among those who dwell in God's presence, our lives should reflect what we state that we believe. Now listen, this is not to to get in. We're invited in by His grace and mercy through, through His initiative. We're invited in totally by grace. But that grace is grace that changes His people. Grace changes. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So ceremony and pretense and just going through the motions will not suffice. We are to be doers of the word and not just hearers, not pretenders. So let's look at the answer. Let's look at what David gives as the answer to that question. Inspired by the Spirit of God, he has given this to us for our growth and our edification. He describes for us the the character and the conduct of the one who may dwell with the Lord. And and you're going to see as we go through this that these verses move from kind of a positive description, this is what this person does, to a negative, this is what this person does not do, then back to positive, then back to negative. So it just kind of moves in this flow. And remember, this description is not exhaustive of what it's like to live as a believer but it is representative of what we are to be like in many ways. So verse 2 begins with a positive angle. He walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his, um, in his heart. So here's the, um, you know, it's all dealing with this, but this really specifically deals with the inner life, the character, the integrity of an individual. The, the walk is to be blameless, upright. Genesis 17.1, the call that the Lord gave to Abram, who became Abraham, Um, who was renamed Abraham later, was this, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Walk before me and be blameless. He's called, he's called into the presence and then he's told, walk and be blameless. It's an upright walk. It's, It's not perfection, okay? None of us can walk in perfection, but it is direction. It is, we're moving in that direction more and more. 
Again, this is integrity. You're sound and complete in what you do. You're not a blatant hypocrite. And I say it that way. I say not a blatant hypocrite because all of us, every day, act contrary to what we say we believe. But here's the thing. The blatant hypocrite continues on in that. The believer repents and turns from it by faith and says, it is consistent to mess up and to say, I'm sorry. It's inconsistent with what we say we believe to mess up and say it's totally fine. Now, consider David, the one who wrote this psalm. He sinned egregiously, didn't he? I think he was just trying to check off all the Ten Commandments as breaking them at one point in time. But when he was confronted by Nathan, what did he do? He repented. He repented. He threw himself on the mercy and grace of God. And so here are people who strive to live with ethical rightness, with actions that reflect a heart, to do what is right, to, to act morally, and, and they do what is right. So that, and this plays out in everyday situations. You know, if you want just a simple, a simple example, you're undercharged somewhere, you go up and you let them know. You let the restaurant know, hey, you, you, you didn't charge me right for this. There's integrity. There's, you, you could have gotten away with it with ease, but it's who you are on the inside. It comes out. It's being the same in private as you are in public. Now, doing right also means more than simply not doing wrong. You actually work for what is just and righteous. You abhor the false weights and measures. You abhor oppression. You abhor people taking advantage of others. And further then, this person, it says, speaks truth in his heart. Now contrast this with the description of Psalm 12.2. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. This describes those who say one thing, but means something else. Isaiah 29.13, the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You know, when we honor with our lips, when we say something, but yet it doesn't actually line up, because our heart is far from him, that's what he's calling us against. That is not speaking truth in your heart. So David's getting here more than to mere truthfulness, but that our words line up with who we say that we are. There's not separation between what is said and what is done. You know, I think there's another aspect to this. The speaking truth in your heart. I think there's also an aspect that you are willing to hear truth. To your very heart. You're willing to have truth spoken to your very being. You don't flatter yourself. You work away from being consistently defensive. At the deepest level of the heart, you wrestle to understand who you are that you're a sinner saved by grace and in massive need of daily grace, in need of Jesus. Because we all mess up. We all sin. But what we do then is we bring that into the light. We allow that truth to be spoken and we deal with it. There's singleness of heart. 
and life. We, we, we seek to do good to those around us, and we abstain from what is wrong. There's harmony between our heart and our speech. Well, then comes verse 3, which moves into a negative description, but I think it carries on from what we've just talked about. Who does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up reproach against his friend. This picks up from the last line of verse 2. In dealing with speech, with, with, with the, the tongue and, and having it restrained and controlled, when one is in communion with God, with the God of all truth, when that is descriptive of you, when you, say, when you identify with the God of all truth, that means that you would seek to avoid all misuse of speech. First, does not slander with his tongue. Exodus 20, 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It's the ninth commandment. Damaging a neighbor's reputation, slander is a very serious thing. And think of how quickly that happens in this world today. I mean, it was one thing when there was no way to communicate beyond your immediate neighbors in many ways. But how quickly this moves. Something can go viral in mere moments and someone's life and reputation can be tarnished forever. Now, no matter what you think of this situation that happened a few years ago, if I say the name Nicholas Sandman, many of you know who that is and you know that his reputation was tarnished in an instant. And even though there's been, hey, we misjudged, we misdid, it doesn't matter. Everyone knows that Nicholas Sandman was that little boy with a smirk. At least that's what it looked like. And snap judgments were made everywhere. And snap judgments are probably something we should never, ever verbalize. Take time. Consider the angles. Consider the situation. Here's the thing. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. I feel like I've heard that somewhere before. This is difficult. It is. Think about further what James tells us. James chapter 3, starting in verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And then down to verse 6. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. And set on fire by hell, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Folks, the tongue is hard. Um, well, actually, it's, it's impossible for us to tame it. Now, one way to, to help tame the tongue, not only ours, but even those around us, is to not be the one, as David says in Psalm 15, who takes up a reproach against his friend. Uh, John Calvin addressed this, I think, quite vividly. He said, when anyone is the bearer of invented falsehoods, okay, so when anyone bears invented falsehoods, those who reject them leave them, as it were, to fall to the ground, 
While on the contrary, those who propagate and publish them from one person to another are, by an expressive form of speech, said to raise them up or take up the reproach. So what he's saying is you have to refuse gossip. You have to refuse to gossip and you have to refuse to hear it. So if somebody's starting to share it with you, flatly reject it so that it can fall to the ground and die the wicked death that it deserves to die. We are not to spread bad reports. We are not to listen to those. We are not to take up that reproach against a friend or a neighbor. So from there, though, we move to verse 4, more of a positive description. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now, this first part addresses our allegiance. Uh, despising a vile person, that might not sound like a positive thing at first. It might sound a bit harsh in some ways. You know, are we supposed to actually despise people? You know, some of that is, let's, let's actually think through what the term vile might have meant here or does mean here. And it likely refers to those who were part of the covenant community but rejected it. They rejected God himself. They rejected the covenants. And those who reject the grace and mercy of God, the goodness of God, who are part of it, they bring disgrace upon God and the God of truth, the one who is truth. And so what the godly person does is they declare what they admire and where they stand. This is not Pharisaism. This is not uh, uh, just absolutely judging all kinds of other people. This is loyalty to God. This is showing that you believe fully that God is the Lord. It's not a spirit of superiority. Not at all. It's actually humility. Okay, now I, follow me. It's actually humility because you are declaring that you have to have the Lord. You have to continue to stand in the mercy and grace of God. So by despising the one who has turned away and rejected the covenant, you're saying, no, I, I can't go there. I can't go there and, and try and live a, a, an autonomous life away from God. I have to stay here. I have to stay with the God of grace and mercy. I'll not survive without him. See, part of this too is that we are to be people of sound judgment. Think of what Paul wrote in Ephesians 5. Verses 11 and 12, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Folks, we cannot have regard for wickedness. We cannot even regard it with indifference. It's shameful to even speak of it. If we, if we do not reprove it, there is I think there is a sense in which we are giving silent approval and, and there's actually a level of fellowship by not reproving the wickedness. We have to have sound judgment in that. So this is declaring our allegiance. And then this last line of the verse, it's not really the clearest in Hebrew. <laughs> um, my Hebrew is not the greatest, but as I read many others, they're like, this is not an easy verse. This idea of who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now, I think they get to the point of it, though. And it's, it's a prohibition against sinfully vacillating between what you're going to do or what you're not going to do. Just this constant yes is, is no and no is yes, and, and, and no one really knows what's going on. This is not about 
having responsible second thoughts for things. You know, for example, when Aaron and I and, um, let's see, Reed and Meredith at the time moved to Florida, the first six months we kind of waited to, to look for a house, and, and then we did, and we found this house, and um, we liked it. We put it in, a, in an offer, and once we put in the offer and we got back to, to our apartment, both of us just did not feel right about it. Now, this was the bubble of 2006 in Florida, so that already tells you something, Okay. And we ended up calling friends and, and others and saying, hey, we think this is going to strap us really bad and be utterly stressful. And to a T, every person said, you put like 24 hours on the contract, see if it runs out, and then you're, you're free. But if not, lose your earnest money. Because it's better to lose your earnest money and to feel that hurt than to be in utter stress and strain the entire time you live in that house. And honestly, had we bought that house, folks, we never would have been here. We would have taken a wash we could not have afforded when we moved up here in 2011. It was a $50,000 difference between what we had for our other house that we eventually bought as opposed to that one. And we couldn't have done that. So it's not about responsible second thoughts. And and we were willing to, to feel the hurt of losing earnest money. Stuff that that wasn't just throwaway change for us. We were willing to do that. But we also knew that there was a responsibility in some of those second thoughts. But I think so much of this too is that before you make a promise, consider what you're doing. Consider it. Don't speak rashly. And you keep it even if it hurts to keep it. Well, finally then, we have the last negative in in verse 5, the first two lines. Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. These teach us further how we view money. Money is a window into our souls. Money is a window into what we value. You know, 1 Timothy 6, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, what this is talking about is let's not take advantage of others. You know, this idea of interest, who does not put out his money at interest, there's some nuance in Scripture. It doesn't flatly say you can never charge interest, but for a brother and a brother in need, you are not to charge interest. You are not to take advantage of them in any way And you're not to take advantage of a difficult situation. Certainly, (laughs) don't be willing to take money and get a big payout so you can condemn an innocent person. (laughs) That one's pretty clear. I think that's an easy one to figure out. Like, if you're willing to take a bribe and get a couple hundred thousand or whatever it might be and condemn an innocent person, there's a problem there. There's a massive problem there way out of bounds. And so the way we view money is important. It is a window to our soul. And all of these things that we see in verses 2 through 5, they're they're a representative picture of the person who dwells with the Lord. One who, who, who lives what they say they believe. And for that person then comes this glorious promise of the very last line. He who does these things shall never 
be moved. He who does these things shall never be moved. But are there any such people? Romans 3 tells us no. There's no one who does good, not one. So when we, when we know that, when, when we understand the scope of Scripture in that sense, where's our hope? Because this promise is amazing. To never be moved, ever. It really emphasizes that. The one who does this will never be moved for eternity. Which does not mean we'll never have difficulties or face trials, but that we will never be moved from dwelling with God, from being in His presence. So where's our hope? How do, how do we become this kind of person? That's only by grace through faith in the perfect man, in Christ. We cannot earn our way here. This description, it's not prescriptive of what we are to do to get in. It's a description of what is true of the one who is in gracious relationship with the Lord of all. It's a description of those who, who are in Christ. We, we are those who so consistently fall short of this picture. I've, you know, just little openness here more Last, last night was not a good night for me. I was not the person of Psalm 15. And I felt that. I felt that this morning. I was able to text other pastor friends and say, guys, I'm struggling. This is a hard one. I'm thankful for the mercy seat of God. You know, um, that, that promise is thy only fort. You know, it, it's the mercy seat is for sinners. And just reminded more and more of the beauty of Christ. He, he's the only one who this description is true of. But it's also counted as true for those who are in Christ. And that's, that's a miracle. That's amazing. And as we are in Christ, we will actually grow to become more and more reflective of what we read in this. Never perfectly will we get there in this life, but God will work in us. You know, the beautiful reality is, is we can dwell with God because God dwelt with us. We read it earlier, John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And you just move down a little bit in chapter one of the gospel of John, verse 29. It says, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world the one who dwelt with us, the one who tabernacled, who pitched his tent with us in the incarnation is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin 
of the world. Jesus took it upon himself, our failure to be that person described in Psalm 15. Only Christ has ever fulfilled that perfectly. And it's only by grace, by the the Spirit of God at work in us, that we will reflect this more and more truly. Now, one other thing. At the beginning, I said this was serious. Because there are too many who believe that just because they show up at church or say they're Christians, that everything's good. That's not what the Lord tells us here in Psalm 15. It's not what we have from his very lips in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Because those are serious words. This is a serious psalm. Thankfully, we have a God who dwelt with us who dwelt among us. In Christ, he fulfilled everything in this. He is the one who has ascended the holy hill of the Lord, who is at the right hand of the Father, in the presence of the Father. So let us be people who who dwell in the presence of God by grace through faith in Christ, Not, not, not trying to work our way there, but we work because we want to reflect the love that he's shown to us, the grace and the mercy We live in line with the fact that we need grace every single day, every single moment. We are not looking for perfection, but we are looking to be people who strive to be more and more like the perfect man, like our Savior, so that we can walk with him in grace and truth, dwell forever in the presence of God on his holy hill, and never be moved ever from his presence because we are those in Christ. Let's pray. Father, do give us strength. Give us the strength to give us the strength to rest in you. To believe in your goodness and your grace and your mercy and to delight in all that you are. Father, thanks for your love. Thanks that in Christ you fulfilled the picture of this person in Psalm 15. And thank you that we have the privilege of being those who are in Christ by repentance and faith. And it's in his glorious name we pray. Amen.